What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. Hot inflation. Fed members hinting at big hikes while consumers feel the pinch from food to housing. Becky Quick and Brian Sullivan get into it. People are cutting corners. We have a friend who's doing some remodeling now. And Becky, what are they leaving out? Don't worry about the roof, honey. We don't need that. Weighing the COVID risks still. The latest on case counts and health policy with former FDA head Scott Gottlieb. This wave has run its course with people unmasked a little early and they start to take more risks. They socialize more. Perhaps cases won't continue to decline as rapidly but they're going to continue to come down. And truckers protesting vaccine mandates blocking the U.S.-Canada border and driving disruption for the auto industry. New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. Right now we have a pandemic of the foolish and the selfish. I find all this all being done in the name of freedom. Freedom from who? From Mother Nature? It's just nonsense. Those stories plus the slow walk to ban stock trading by government officials and Berkshire Hathaway's Charlie Munger taking the stage next week, but maybe not where you think. We need Becky Quick in Omaha. It's Friday, February 11th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. And when I say welcome, I mean welcome to you, Brian Sullivan. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Good to see you. Good to see everybody else. Joe and Andrew are off today, uh, but let's start talking about the markets because what we saw yesterday was really something to behold. We were down really significantly. Dow was down by 526 points. That's about one and a half percent. The S&P was down even more. It was down by 1.8 percent, but it was the Nasdaq that was the biggest loser. It was down by 2.1 percent, and this was all happening as people saw that CPI number, digested some things, heard uh, the Fed President Bullard, the St. Louis Fed President Bullard say that he's expecting rate hikes maybe sharper and faster than people had been anticipating. He was talking about 50 basis points coming in March and at least 100 basis points by July. And that caused some real pressure in the markets. Real estate was the worst performing sector yesterday. And Brian, you, you know what's happening there. A higher mortgage, higher mortgage rates, as you see the 10-year move higher as well. That was down by 2.86%. And then the banking sector, which you would expect to, to get a little help from higher interest rates, even that was weaker yesterday as, as well. I think that's going to be the big economic story going forward, which is how much these rising rates impact housing. Prices have gone up, and we know this. Most people don't buy a home on the price of the house. They buy a home on how much they can afford every month. So as right. prices have gone up but rates have stayed low, that monthly payment has been manageable. Prices are up, but now we know monthly payments are going to go up because rates are going to go up. And I think, Becky, that's going to be the question. How much of this really quick, sharp, steep rise in rates, will it impact housing? Or is there enough demand that people are going to kind of suck it up, for lack of a better term, 
and pay the higher costs. You know, the, the people it really hits are the people who are newly coming into this market, the, the, the people who don't own a home at this point. So it's not like you're trading up and you get a higher sales price and you see what happens with some of those things. The people we've kind of brought this up with have said, well, historically speaking, you're still talking about incredibly low interest rates. You're right. This is not like 8% or even 18% that my parents were paying back in the 80s. But what you're watching with some of these things is just what you mentioned. Housing prices have gone up pretty significantly. And, and the question becomes, where's the give? Especially if you're a new home builder, your costs are going up for construction, too. Um, watching some of the home builders yesterday to kind of keep an eye on what that meant for all of them. Uh, but you're right. The, the monthly payment, that's what matters to the consumer. Lumber futures, they have re-spiked. They were super high. They came down. They are back up to your point. Labor costs, steel costs, yeah. copper costs. Last thing I checked is that you need lumber, steel, people, and copper to build a home. Although I will tell you, people are cutting corners wherever they can. I have a friend who's doing some remodeling now and trying to get rid of any of the metal that they could because those costs had risen so high, finding ways to try and get around this because- What are they, Becky, what are they leaving out? I, don't worry about the roof, honey. We don't I, I don't need know. That. They, he was talking about this the other day and talking about the molding they were putting up, but they were able to get rid of some, talking to he and his architect, and they were able to get rid of some of the metal points that they were going to put in. And I, it made me start to wonder, are you going to be getting shoddier construction if you're buying a house that's being built right now? just because everybody's going to be looking to cut corners. And it's one thing if you're the homeowner, you're looking for ways to do it reasonably. If you're not the homeowner, if you're a contractor, you're looking at ways that maybe are not as long-term focused as somebody who actually owns the house might There's be. There's six words that you don't want any home builder to, to say to you. Becky, you know what those are? Uh, we don't need that steel beam. <laughs> I think they're cutting out beams. I don't think they're doing that, but there are places where they were cutting corners. It was the homeowner who knew it himself. So they were looking at ways that they could get rid of some things they didn't necessarily need. But I, you know, I was thinking about that yesterday. If you're a contractor and trying to get the job done and you're not working directly with the homeowner. There's one really good way to cut corners. Build a circular house. There you go. Or a dome. That was a terrible joke. Becky, thank you. Dad. Dad joke. Yeah, I'm, I, I am a dad. So there you go. On February 16th, Charlie Munger is set to hold court at the Daily Journal shareholder meeting. That's his company. He's been doing this for years. He's going to be answering shareholder questions virtually starting at 1 p.m. Eastern time. If you would like to get your question to him, you can do that by submitting an email to dailyjournalquestions at cnbc.com. I'll be combing through those questions, and I'll get the chance to ask Charlie as many as possible, and that is coming up next Wednesday. When are you going to be back? In, we need Becky Quick in <laughs> Omaha. When are we getting May. Becky back in Omaha? May, I believe. May? Annual meeting is expected to be on. That's the plan at this point. Berkshire Hathaway has said they are planning an in-person uh, meeting, and that means 40,000 people or so coming, coming to Omaha. So that's the plan at this point. If, if trends continue like they, do, like they look right now, um, that's where we'll be. Good. Can I actually, I take it back. It's April 30th this year. It's usually the first weekend of May, but April they never, 30th, they never conflict with Mother's Day. So this year it's going to be April 30th, Saturday. Same thing. April 30th, May 1st. What's the difference, right? It's rainy and muddy. <laughs> Becky, awesome. What started out as a stock trading ban for lawmakers is now spilling over into every branch of government. Elon Moy is here. She's got more on this front. Elon, what's the latest? Well, Becky, you're right. It's not just lawmakers that are now facing scrutiny for their stock trades. The rest of government is getting swept up in this movement, too. A new proposal out from Democratic Representative Katie Porter and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand would ban trading by the president and vice president, Supreme Court justices, 
and Federal Reserve officials. Now, Gillibrand is one of the original authors of the Stock Act. That's the law that currently governs trading in Congress. And she told me that the scandals during the pandemic made her realize there needs to be a broader approach. The truth is the American people don't have faith in government right now. And we want to show that across branches that we are creating transparency and accountability. Now, new rules for judges are also a priority for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. According to a watchdog group, three Supreme Court justices own individual stocks and have had to recuse themselves from cases because of it. According to their latest data, Chief Justice John Roberts owned Charter Communications and Thermo Fisher. Justice Stephen Breyer held Lowe's and Raytheon. And Justice Samuel Alito had the biggest portfolio, 28 companies, including P&G, Boeing and Abbey. Now, unclear if these stocks are held by the justices themselves or their spouses or dependents, the court says the entire judiciary is trying to update its system to identify potential conflicts of interest. But guys, clearly, Congress doesn't feel like they're moving fast enough. Back over to you. That's rich. Congress doesn't feel like they're moving fast enough. I mean, obviously, Elon, there's a lot to get cleaned up here. Do you think that this is going to be a situation where something actually gets done? Or is this a lot of talk, a lot of kind of fury ahead of things, and then it all gets watered down or nothing happens? Yeah, it's really hard to say at this point, Becky. This is really something that has been uh, sort of bubbling up from the members themselves. As we saw, that pressure caused Pelosi to sort of soften her position and say that she's willing to consider and look at this. So there is pressure. You've pointed out before, we're in a campaign year. This is a great political issue to show that you're trying to clean up Washington. So it's something that certainly has momentum and has legs. We'll see what the final proposals look like because there are a lot of ideas out there. Elon, thank you. I know you're going to continue to follow this, and we will continue to look forward to hearing it. See you soon. Zillow shares also jumped as much as 20 percent in extended trading before moderating some. You can see that stock this morning up by close to 14 percent. This is the digital real estate company. It said it's getting uh, out of the home flipping business faster and more economically than it previously thought. It sold through more of its inventory of homes faster than expected, and that led to fourth quarter revenue that actually beat expectations by a wide margin. Uh, the question always with this one is um, they have so many people who look at it on a daily basis, something like 25 percent of everybody who's out there looking for a new home. How can they kind of capitalize on that? How can they monetize it? Yeah, I mean, that is going to be the question. And so much around the company's home buying plan that went awry, I think, is the technical term for that. And they got out of it and it cost the company a bunch of money. This is the ultimate housing stock play. And we just talked about rates and housing and where this goes Zillow may be the proverbial canary in the housing coal mine, right, Becky? I mean, the market, how it trades Zillow may be telling you what they think about the U.S. housing market. Although it's flapping right away if it's the canary at this point. Although the canary has, has flown a little bit, too. So 13 percent gain now, but it's been a, been a rough flight yeah. for said canary. Next on Squawk Pod, a post-pandemic reality, maybe just a fantasy. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on lowering our masks, moving on, and what we've put off. I think that there's been a reluctance to look into the future, and there's been a reluctance to talk about the sort of post-COVID state. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Roll Prey, Uptrack. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick and Brian Sullivan. Here's Brian. What a change this week has been for mask policies, right? New Jersey, Connecticut, California, and more all suddenly changing their mask policies at nearly the same time this week. Add to that list Nevada. And the fact that all these states with Democrat governors are doing the same thing at the same time is raising some eyebrows. Joining us now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, CBC contributor, serves on the board of Pfizer, and Illumina joining us by phone. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to chat with you. I got a lot of questions. Um, listen, it's good for the kids. It's good, assuming the school boards go along with this, it's good that these policies are changing, I guess, to, to many parents. But should it raise some eyebrows, given that everybody suddenly did it in a, in a 72-hour window? Well, look, the states that are doing it are states where prevalence is declining. If you look at uh, New York City, the tri-state region, if you look at Boston, if you look at the mid-Atlantic, Florida, cases are almost back down to where they were before even the Delta wave in the fall. Uh, if you look at the leading indicators in Boston and New York City, for example, which is sewage wastewater, which is a pretty good predictor of their trends of infection in those cities, it's way down the baseline. So I think that these cities can lean forward. Cases aren't all the way down. Measurable cases in hospitals aren't all the way down, but they can start to lean forward now more safely. Cases, though, and I hear your point, and I, and I publish this data uh, online every week as well. I, the, the case data I know by heart, doctor, but cases are still above where they were when the kids went to school in the fall. I mean, that I think is what raises eyebrows. My son went to school in early September. Cases were way lower than they are now. And yet, so now they could say, well, cases have come down. But you can look and say that on an absolute basis, they're still higher in many states than they were when the kids went back to school. Is this the governor's saying that the pandemic has run its ultimate course? Well, this wave has run its course. There's probably nothing that's going to change the trajectory that they're measuring. If they, if people unmask a little early and they start to take more risks, they socialize more, perhaps cases won't continue to decline as rapidly as they've been declining. But they're going to continue to come down. Uh, and when you look at the tri-state region, for example, cases are pretty low right now. You look at the, the data coming out of the schools, how many cases they're turning over on a day-over-day basis, and it's pretty much back to the baseline it was before the big Omicron surge. So there are parts of the country where it's way down. Hospitalizations are still up. They're a lagging indicator. It takes a, a while for people to be discharged from the hospital. But I think the trajectory is very clear. And there's now data out of South Africa as well where they have B2. B2, which is this new Omicron variant, has overtaken B1 in South Africa. It's now 100% of all the cases. But they continue to see cases come down even with that new variant. So while that new variant spread, it didn't change the overall trajectory. And that seems to be the experience here, too. B2 is gaining very slowly in prevalence, but it's not changing the overall trajectory, which is a, a rapidly downward trajectory. So I don't think it's imprudent that governors lean forward, anticipating that conditions are going to continue to improve, recognizing that people are afraid, people have been doing this for a long time, and we have a narrow window of opportunity to restore some sense of normalcy to the schools. They want to seize that opportunity. Let's talk about something. I want to look forward, Doctor. I've been wanting to ask you this for a while because as 
COVID has been horrible, but awful. We're probably going to have a million people with their lives lost, taken early. Um, it's been an absolute disaster for so many families. But so too will the future. And I want to ask you this. With higher prevalence of cancer, okay, my local oncologist, because somebody very close to me fought breast cancer last year, uh, said her practice is seeing a doubling in active breast cancer cases. Obesity, diabetes, drug abuse, spousal abuse, alcohol abuse, cigarette sales up for the first time in 20 years. What kind of post-COVID healthcare response do we need? Because you could make the case that we will lose millions of early lives over the next 10 years. What do we need to do post-COVID? Look, we need to anticipate the fact that there's going to be a lot of morbidity on the back end of this. People who um, gained weight, people too much drinking during COVID, mental health issues, and people who didn't follow up routine screening so they didn't catch cancers and other kinds of medical conditions early enough where you were able to intervene more easily and implement curative therapy. There's going to be a lot of morbidity on the back end of this. We need to start, as you said, anticipating that. Doctors need to be more aggressive in bringing people in for screening. And we need to recognize there's going to be a lot of health care costs, a surge in health care costs probably on the back end of this. You'll see medical loss ratios uh, start to get compressed for managed care companies as more people start to seek more serious health care. Why isn't there more of a national conversation about this, Dr. Gottlieb? Why aren't we talking, to your point, as bad as COVID is, and it's been horrible, and nobody's downplaying that. But to your point and to many other experts, we're looking at all these other things. We can see this coming. We know what's happened. We know about the missed screenings. We know about the, the diabetes prevalence. We know about uh, emotional and the psychological toll that so many have suffered. Why, when do we begin? I want to try to be positive. When do we begin on a national level having these hard, grown-up conversations about how to help people and deal with the other things that have, have been sort of ignored almost Fentanyl abuse, alcohol, all this stuff. When do we deal with this? How? We should deal with it. We should deal with it right away. I think that there's been a reluctance to look into the future, and there's been a reluctance to talk about the sort of post-COVID state, I think, in part, including by public health officials who feared that if we talk too much about the post-COVID state and what the future looks like, it's going to take away the incentives of people to try to engage in behavior now to try to control the spread of the virus. We need to start having this conversation now. Because there's going to be things that policymakers, if they work quickly, can do to try to get resources, especially to hard-to-reach communities, to try to work off some of this excessive morbidity uh, and this risk that we've accrued, this healthcare risk that we've accrued. Hey, Scott, on that same point, um, we had filed with our insurance company, some, put in some bills that uh, we, we hope to be reimbursed for several months ago. It's taking a while, not a big deal for me, but when, when I asked around about it, I heard that a lot of insurance companies are at least four to six months behind on catching up with some of these things, these ideas to be reimbursed. For somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, that could be a huge issue if you're in the middle of some treatment or if you're in the middle of doing therapies or something, for those people not to get reimbursed. How, how, how frequently is this happening? Yeah, I haven't heard that. and It's surprising to me because the health, I don't think the health insurers had an unusual burst in claims because of COVID. Um, you know, insofar as they saw increased activity because of COVID, people were being hospitalized for the virus. They also saw a reduction in utilization. So as you know, if you look back over the last two years, many insurers did reasonably well through COVID because the increased uh, costs from the pandemic were offset by decreased utilization of routine services and other kinds of healthcare needs.
Leib, it's a pleasure to have you on. We have got a long way to go in the next few years and a lot of things that we are going to have to work on. Doctor, thank you for the honest dialogue. Thanks a lot. Cheese will be next. Coming up, the border blockade between the U.S. and Canada threatening hundreds of millions of dollars of trade daily. A report from the snarled bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, and the New York Times' Tom Friedman on the snarl between rights and responsibilities. They have a right to protest, and I have a right to tell them their protest is stupid and selfish. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody, right here on CNBC and TGIF. I am Brian Sullivan along with Becky Quick. Joe and Andrew, they are off, likely on a plane, maybe together. We'll see. The economic impact of the trucker protest at the U.S.-Canada border is ramping up. Both Ford and General Motors have had to cut back production because of parts shortages resulting from the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, Canada. The truckers are protesting COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I'll turn things over to Mayor Dilkins to start us off now. Please go ahead, Your Worship. You know, yesterday we met and I spoke about the dramatic economic impact that the occupation of the Ambassador Bridge is having on our local, our provincial and our national supply chains and economies. We want freedom, freedom of all mandates. You know, the Ambassador Bridge, that bridge between Detroit and Windsor, that carries as much trade as all trade between the United States and the United Kingdom. I mean, it's a pretty 25% of U.S.-Canada trade right. goes over that bridge, which, by the way, is privately owned. A lot of people don't yeah, realize that. I saw that. The guy who owns it's a billionaire, really, just from the bridge. And he's saying to the Canadian government, of course, he's got an interest, just end the mandates. COVID cases are way down. Why not just end the mandates and get the truckers roll in and get over the bridge. Well, the, the control of that, the private control of that has been such a big issue because they're able to ratchet up whatever they want for the tolls that there were already efforts to build another bridge to kind of ease the congestion at that one bridge and just the control that they have over that entire market. The Biden administration is urging Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to use federal powers to end the blockade, whatever that may mean. That pressure coming as groups, including the Chamber of Commerce, calling for a resolution on the matter saying the disruptions are adding to the significant supply chain strains of manufacturers and other businesses in the U.S. Protests forcing automakers like Ford to seek alternatives to get parts over the border, including looking at flying parts in. 
Christina Partsadevalos is on the scene and has more. Christina, what's going on this morning? Well, Brian, it's a crucial trade link blocked by protesters for the fifth day. You have exits like this one here in Detroit blocking all incoming and outgoing traffic trying to leave the country. And you have trucks that make at least or thousands of trips on the Ambassador Bridge each day, transporting over $300 million worth of goods. And so the impact is certainly being felt. Listen in. My truck is not as full today actually for the last three days as it is like before this all took place um i was full coming back every day and losses are certainly being felt so you like you mentioned you have auto manufacturers that are scaling back more specifically gm has scaled back three shifts just in lansing michigan alone um, and they've even had to charter a cargo plane to get the missing parts that are stuck at the border on the other side of this bridge then you have uh, Honda, for example. They have two plants, one specifically in Oakville, Ontario. Uh, they make the Civic as well as the CRV SUV, and they have had issues. You've had Ford that's had to scale back. You're feeling it all the way in Kentucky. The Toyota Motor Manufacturing has said that they've had issues getting parts affecting certain models like the RAV4, the Camry, the Lexus. The list continues. And according to the Anderson Economic Group right now, they're estimating 50 $51 million in lost wages just this week alone. Officials on the Canadian side have filed an injunction, but unfortunately the judge has delayed that hearing until at least noon today. So the protests continue. Becky, Brian. Christina, thank you very much. Christina Partsanevelis, who is there on site. This protest blockade at the border highlights the political divisions that two years of pandemic life have intensified. The New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman joins us right now. And Tom, um, let's talk about this because there is a right to protest. People absolutely should have that. But I'm reading uh, in the Canadian newspapers this morning, the Globe and Mail, talking about how Ontario, the government, is planning to take additional steps at this point. They're going to consider fines and even potentially taking away some of these trucks. I mean, this, this gets to the heart of a pretty big problem at this point. You know, Becky, we, right now we have a pandemic of the foolish and the selfish. Um, you know, what are the governments in America and Canada asking of these drivers who cross borders back and forth every day is get quarantined, get, get uh, vaccinated, fully vaccinated or or be quarantined. Do it for yourself. Do it for your neighbors. Most of all, do it for the doctors and nurses who have been completely exhausted after two years of this. Um, so you won't be putting additional pressure on them. Uh, and so I, I find all this all being done in the name of freedom. Freedom from who? From Mother Nature? Um, uh, it, it's just it's just nonsense. And we're so late into this. It's so hurtful to their neighbors, to the doctors and nurses, and ultimately to their economies. But, Tom, they do have the right to protest. Well, you, sure, you have, you have the right to protest. Yeah, but you should have at least a logic for your protest. They have a right to protest, and I have a right to tell them their protest is stupid and, shell and selfish. But they represent a significant portion of the population in Canada and in the United States. They're, they're not alone in this. This is not a small part of, the, part of the population. And they're angry about what's been happening over the last couple of years. Sure. I'm, I'm angry. Take a call Mother Nature, get her on the phone and say, stop spreading this pandemic. Um, we know the facts, Becky, from the CDC. Uh, if you are uh, an adult 18 years or older and you are not vaccinated, you are 16 times more likely to end up in a hospital. If you're 65 or over, you're 50 times more likely to end up in a hospital. And if you're not vaccinated and you're an adult, you're 20 times more likely to die. Um, so th those are the those, those are the facts. 
I don't care if you want to die for yourself, but maybe think about the doctors and nurses that we have basically crushed in the last two years because people won't get vaccinated. And what happens? They end up in the hospital. And what do they then say to those doctors and nurses on their deathbed, according to the American Hospital Association? Boy, I wish I'd been vaccinated. So how did this go wrong? How did we get from the point of looking at scientific numbers like that to getting to the point where people are just angry on both sides of this? Why is there no room for kind of an intellectual conversation about what's happening, especially when you look at the numbers of who's dying right now, who's winding up in the hospital? It's a really important question, Becky, and it, it would be worth a, a whole two hours of squawk box. You know, The Lancet um, uh, recently came out with a fascinating study um, which country in the world did best during the pandemic it was Vietnam. Vietnam, they have 100 million people, not a particularly strong public health system. But what the study found was that they had a really high level of trust, trust in each other and trust in the government. You know, one of my teachers and friends, Dove Seidman, likes to say trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. Trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. And if there's one thing that's happened to America, over the last 20 years is a general erosion in trust, people in the government and people in each other. Some of it's because government's gotten a lot of things wrong and experts have gotten things wrong and they deserve to be challenged. Um, a lot of, it, I think, also is social networks. We, we are now in the middle of an infodemic, not just a pandemic, um, driven on by Twitter and Facebook and, and um, all these other social networks whose business model is to enrage and divide people. And it has real health consequences. It has real societal consequences. Tom, it's Brian. Listen, I, I completely agree on that point. I've been very active in posting actual COVID data, not, you know, and letting people decide for themselves on social media. I do agree on those points. You know, Vietnam, obviously warm countries uh, maybe have an advantage. We know vitamin D, according to CDC and everybody, you know, has an advantage. Uh, the U.S.'s numbers are not any worse than Belgium or the Netherlands or Spain. This is truly a, a global pandemic. But going back to your previous point about Canada, and we can agree to disagree on this, it's two years in. Don't these people have some human right to say enough is enough? I mean, they're clearly not going to get vaccinated. And by the way, the vaccine, and we don't know if they're all non-vaccinated, by the way, Tom, the vaccination rates are about the same here as they are in many other Western European countries. I mean, there's just going to be a quarter of populations that don't want to do it. I don't think this is a U.S. issue. I, I was not claiming it was a U.S. issue. They absolutely have their rights. Absolutely. I don't dispute that for a second. They also have responsibilities. Also, we're, we're in an epidemic in America and obviously in Canada as well, where everyone has rights and nobody has responsibilities. They have that right. But what is their responsibility? to their family, their neighbors, and to the health workers. You tell me, I mean, we, we can argue about what their responsibility is, but- I'm telling you what their responsibility is. Well, I'll is. tell you this, Tom, Tom, yeah. I, I'm, I'm fully vaccinated, boosted. My, my family is fully vaccinated and boosted. Everybody in my family got COVID over New Year's. Some of my family have had COVID more than once. I'm just Did gonna say die? that. Did any of no, them die? because, it, because it's a great- Did any of them end up in, the, no, up in the hospital? Well, so, no, but right now, 52% of people in Massachusetts in the hospital with COVID are fully vaccinated. That's publicly available data. It's a great therapeutic, by the way. It is a great therapeutic, and, and I'm glad I got vaccinated because my symptoms were low. What I'm saying is these are people who are seeing this spread of Omicron 
and saying, well, all these vaccinated people got it. Now, you're right. It reduces severity. That's the key. That's you know, the key. Where is that government line drawn, though, Tom, between when the government says you have to do something and human choice? Well, again, they, have, everyone has their right, everyone, they all have their right to do this. I'm simply saying when you don't do it, you massively increase the prospect you're going to end up in a hospital. You massively increase the prospect if you're in the wrong category that you're going to die. And in doing both, um, you know, the latest study shows about two thirds of nurses today are thinking of getting out of the profession. That, that's because they've had. That's because they have to watch over all of this. Yeah, um, maybe some of the best incentives. I'm just trying to think of ways to do this the right way. Some of the best incentives are um, the financial incentives that have been offered. Remember when Delta said that anybody who didn't get vaccinated on its staff would have to go ahead and pay for a couple hundred dollars extra a month for higher health care bills, because at that point, the only people that Delta had in the hospital were people who were unvaccinated. And it was costing them quite a bit for every one of those. We just heard today that Amazon is saying, if you're fully vaccinated, you can take your mask off. You don't have to wear it in the warehouses anymore. But by the way, if you get COVID and you're unvaccinated, you will no longer get paid leave for, for something that they think that you should have control over. I think it's a really good point, Becky. You know, Becky, you, you probably won't remember this, but the first time uh, I was on uh, Squawk Box after the pandemic began in March 2020, uh, it was after a column I wrote, I mean, to, to Brian's point, um, that um, we have to approach this pandemic with a, a, a framework of what uh, Dr. David Katz calls total harm minimization. We have to maximize two things at the same time, saving lives and saving livelihoods. We have a logistics problem around tests. We have a cure problem, which doesn't exist. We have a political problem. We haven't agreed on a bailout. We have a global um, uh, disorder problem, and we have an oil problem. We need a, just an all-out push, uh, World War II level, to get the tests and the equipment that we need. And I would say I'd be setting up field hospitals right now. If we focus entirely on saving every life from this pandemic, we are going to crush people's hopes, dreams, finances, savings in ways that will have long-term consequences. So from the very beginning, that's where I was. Um, uh, I was not like, uh, you know, just saying, shut everything down. And that's been my position all along. And by the way, when I articulated back that back in March, 2020, I was not a popular guy, all right? That was not a popular view. It was basically myself and the Wall Street Journal arguing that. But at the same time, now we're two years later. Now we know what works. We know it works for individuals. We know it works for families. We know it works for doctors and nurses. We know it works for the economy. And that is get vaccinated. That's the best way you save lives and livelihoods at the same time. Tom, where do we go from here then? Uh, because we're going to look back and realize that some of the things we did, keeping kids inside, right? We didn't know. To be fair, we didn't know. It looks stupid now. Right. Close the parks. The parks should have been open because we know outside good, inside bad. So I'm not going to, you know, relitigate the past. But how do we go forward from this? How do our politicians say and some of them have to say this? We got it wrong. Just say we got it wrong. The science hasn't changed. We've changed. Yeah. You know, it's really hard. Brian. It gets back to the point we we're discussing first about Vietnam, a communist country. But um we, we've just so lost trust um, in each other, um, in, in communities, in our leadership. Um, again, some of that's because bad government decisions. A lot of it, I continue to believe, is the infodemic that um, so many people get their news now from uh, uh, either unauthoritative sources or from 
from social networks like Facebook, whose business model is to divide and enrage us. And um, I, I, we'll get over um, this uh, Omicron. Will we get over Facebook? I, I'm not sure. Hey, Tom, thank you for your time. It's good to see you this morning. You too, Becky. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Tom, by the way, is the author of the bestseller, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. That's the pod for today and for the week. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Brian Sullivan for sitting in today and for offering some timeless advice. There's six words that you don't want any home builder to say to you. Becky, you know what those are? Uh, We don't need that steel beam. (laughs) Tune in to Squawk Box weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.